how bodybuilding and being dedicated to transforming your physique has positively impacted other aspects of your life. One of the biggest things that I learned, I mean, I learned to work hard. Yeah. And I learned that the limits that we place on ourselves are that exactly that, right? Like the limits that we think that we have, we can go well beyond those limits. And the delayed gratification, that's really a huge piece. And then the other piece is just consistency and doing something over and over again and practicing something and refining it and getting better and realizing that you may suck at a lot of things initially when you yeah. start, right? And that's okay. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Dr. Joey Munoz Show. Today, I'm really excited to have my good friend, Darone, on the podcast. Um, I've actually been a guest on Daron's podcast a couple times now, and he's been one of the inspirations that uh, actually he's been pushing me to, to start a podcast for quite some time. So I'm really excited to have him here on my show today. Daron is a master's student in clinical nutrition. He's doing some really cool research, looking at the effects of different nutrients on cognitive development in two-year-old children, which is really fascinating work. Um, he's also working on getting his uh, he's going to become a registered dietitian and he just got accepted into his dietetic internship as well, which is really exciting. It takes a lot of hard work to get into that. Um, and he's the owner of Eat Right Nutrition, his online nutrition and fitness coaching company. Daron's been in the industry for over 15 years. He's competed personally as a bodybuilder and has worked with dozens, if not hundreds of clients to help them improve their physique and body composition. Daron, thank you so much for being here today, my man. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. Yeah, of course, dude. Seriously, it's a it's a pleasure to have you on. Um, I know you invited me on your podcast. I think it's a little bit over a year now, right? And I think the the first conversation we had was very like quote unquote professional. And I think we both quickly picked up on the fact that neither of us like to act too professional. And <laughs> From there, we've developed a pretty good relationship, man. And um, I appreciate you tremendously for taking time to speak with me today. I'd love to know a little bit more about you and hear about your background, how you got into bodybuilding, how you got into the field of nutrition, and we can start the conversation there. Oh, man, where do I start? Uh, very so beginning, very beginning. I, uh, when I was in high school, I, I wouldn't say that I was the greatest student. Um, I could say I honestly barely remember anything that I learned from high school. It wasn't really until I found nutrition that in college where I started doing that and that where I was like, wow, I'm really interested in this. I'm fascinated. But rewind a little bit pre-college, I, I, I wasn't doing well in school. I wasn't really doing much of anything. I was getting in a lot of trouble. And uh, at, at some point, I, at some point I, I had reached out to my I went over to my uh, social studies teacher in my senior year of high school. I was 17. And I said, hey, man, I just want to get really big so I can beat people up. And he was <laughs> like, all right. And he was a big martial arts guy, big into Arnold Schwarzenegger and bodybuilding. And he's like, all right, I'll, work, I'll write you up a workout routine. But you got to promise me you're not going to beat anybody up. So, and I was 17, 5'11", 125 pounds. So I was, I was very small. But I realized quickly when I got into the gym that I grew very quickly. I, I responded really well to resistance training and I started to surpass my friends. And there was one day in particular that I remember like it was yesterday. I walked into a 7-Eleven and I saw on the magazine rack Troy Alves on the cover of Flex magazine. And I took the, I was like, I want to immediately out loud. I shouted, I want to look like that guy. 
And I just went from there. I started reading about bodybuilding. I started getting into nutrition. I started really writing my own programs. And from there, I think about, I want to say maybe about four or five years later, I had grown and developed into the person that competed in my first INBF bodybuilding competition. And it just continued from there. And then that encouraged me to do more in school. And it was interesting because the discipline that I learned from bodybuilding, you know, it's funny, my mother used to always tell me, if you took the energy that you applied to bodybuilding and you applied that to school, you would do very well. And that's ultimately what I ended up doing. And now here I am today, uh, getting my master's in nutrition and becoming a licensed dietitian and still into bodybuilding, but I've kind of shifted my focus tremendously from my competitive days to where I am now. Yeah, that's actually something I want to touch on a little bit um, in this conversation here today. But uh, that's an, that's a really interesting story, man. Like similar to you, I think I've shared this with you. Like I was a super shitty student growing up, like horrible. And I think a lot of those issues didn't come from the fact that like I didn't like school or I was bad at school. I think it it started from like uh, issues at home with parents and just like an unstable home environment that then like contributed to me misbehaving in school, perhaps. And then I would misbehave in school and get in more trouble at home. And it kind of just like was a, a spiraling type of situation there. Right. But uh, similar to you, man, I I've always been the type of person that like I'm not interested if I'm not interested in something, I don't put any focus or attention into it, even if there is perhaps like repercussions, which isn't the best character trait. But on the flip side of that, if I like something, I'm 100 percent in. So. I never did really well through high school either. I fortunately was accepted to uh, into college at Florida State through a program that was for like first generation college students because neither of my parents went to college. My mom did, but not in the US. My dad dropped out of high school. So the requirements were way lower. And thankfully, I got into college. And then even like freshman, sophomore year of college, I didn't do all that well um, because I was just partying. It was the first time I was on my own didn't really have like a sense of responsibility for school. And then like, no joke, I started taking chemistry courses, started taking nutrition courses, biochemistry, metabolism. And then I was like, oh, shit, this is really cool. And that's pretty much how how it went. And then I was just more applied because I just liked it more. So it's it's funny to hear that you have a similar story there. I really wanted to ask you since we're talking about this in terms of taking the principles that you learned from uh, bodybuilding and applying those to other aspects of your life. I wanted to ask this question because I feel like oftentimes so many people think that bodybuilding or lifting weights is such a like a uh, like bro thing or like macho thing to do, right? Where it it doesn't really require much. You're just lifting weights because you only care about the way you look. And sure, perhaps we all start there. But could you perhaps expand a little bit on how bodybuilding and being dedicated to transforming your physique has positively impacted other aspects of your life? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think one of the biggest things that I learned, I mean, I learned to work hard. Yeah. And I learned that the limits that we place on ourselves are that exactly that, right? Like the limits that we think that we have, we can go well beyond those limits. And, you know, for example, and I, I, uh, I posted this on my story the other day talking about how I was on, I did a, I'm training for a bike ride right now. I'm doing a century bike ride. And 
I did an hour of intervals and then I followed that up because I'm also in a calorie deficit. I'm trying to lose some weight. So I followed that up with 30 minutes on the stairs. And from minute one on those stairs, I wanted to quit. Yeah. And I think it's that perseverance that you get from the sport of bodybuilding that no matter how hard and how difficult something gets, there is a light at the end of the tunnel, regardless of whether or not you can actually see it. Yeah. It's there. And the work that you put in now, if you kind of, and I, this is something that I talk about with my coaching clients is that there's immediate gratification and there's delayed gratification. The immediate gratification would be, I eat something that makes me feel good in the moment. Yeah. The delayed gratification is I'm doing something with a greater purpose and I'm going to feel a whole lot better with the return on what I do down the road mm. and what I achieve down the road. Does that make sense? Of course. So that's really a, a huge piece. And then the other piece is just consistency and doing something over and over again and practicing something and refining it and getting better and realizing that you may suck at a lot of things initially when you yeah. start, right? And that's okay. But when you consistently do something over and over and over again on a consistent schedule, I think time management is one of the big pieces when it comes to bodybuilding is that you have to be able to manage because you're still working full time. You're not doing it as a career. I mean, some people are and they're fortunate to be able to do so. But if you're not, you still have to fit in your work, your education, your family obligations and all of these other things while you're still participating in the sport of bodybuilding. So it really teaches you a lot about time management. Yeah, yeah, certainly. I I think, yeah, I did. I did make an episode on like all of these skills that, that lifting teaches. I think it was one of like the first uh, episodes that I released. But people don't realize that, right? The skill of understanding the importance of delayed gratification is so important because most things that are worth accomplishing in life require you to understand the importance of delayed gratification, right? Whether it's your career or improving a relationship with somebody or really anything like we don't really get immediate results. And I think one of the reasons why people do struggle so much to achieve particular goals in whatever domain it is in their life is because they don't understand delayed gratification. Because like you mentioned, if you simply just stay consistent, and I guess these are principles that apply to, to our clients who are trying to lose weight or whatever, right? If you simply just stay consistent, you don't have to be perfect, show up every day. Some days are going to be better than others. Some days might be a lot worse than others, but as long as you try your best, put forth effort, and just do that every day, you get results. But it's really hard to be okay with that, like to be okay mentally with putting in work today, not seeing any results today, not seeing any results tomorrow, and and trusting the process, right? So that's one incredibly beneficial aspect of, of training your body physically, right? Mental fortitude. Uh, I think it, it, it also builds a tremendous amount of, um, what's the word I'm looking here for confidence, right? Confidence that you can actually achieve difficult things. And, you know, I've talked about these things on social media a couple of times and people uh, mention the fact that it doesn't have to be lifting. It can be any hard endeavor, like learning an instrument, for example. And I agree to an extent, but I can't think of anything that is both as mentally challenging and physically challenging 
as lifting weights, transforming your body, staying consistent with lifting, right? Because the physicality of it is, I think, a very important component. And I'm saying this as somebody who spent eight years of my life trying to get really good at playing the guitar. And I used to practice every single day. And I was super into music. I used to play the saxophone. I would play three or four hours every day. And yes, it's difficult, but it's difficult in different ways. And I don't think it teaches you those skills to the same extent. Because there is something about taking your body through something that's very, very rigorous that teaches you certain things and gives you certain skills that perhaps learning another diffi uh, difficult skill doesn't. Um, so I'm really happy that you shared those. I also wanted to talk about, and this is a conversation that you and I were having uh, the other day, how has your transition been from being a competitive bodybuilder to now not being a competitive bodybuilder? undertaking other physical endeavors, perhaps prioritizing other things more like your education and your career. How has that been mentally in terms of what does that shift feel like? Because, and the reason I want to talk about this is because whether it's going from bodybuilding to not bodybuilding or whatever transition it is that people undergo in their life, when you identify with a particular thing or, or something is part of your identity, and then you start to shift your focus towards something else. It could be really difficult, right? Especially if people say stuff or you have negative conversations in your head. It can be really difficult to be okay with that change. And I think you're navigating it really, really well. And I'd, I'd love to hear from you. What has that shift been like? Yeah, so what you bring up is true. It's, it's, not, it's a very difficult shift. It's something that you're like, I want to do this. And I want to, because I didn't always just want to be the big meathead or perceived in that way, right? Mm -hmm. I, I always knew I have more in my brain and I have a lot more to offer. Uh, and I'm very capable of a lot of things. And it's difficult though, because you, like you mentioned, you identify as something, right? I have like this kind of alias of the big Cito is what people would call me. And uh, I'm just the biggest guy in the gym. And you go from that to, okay, well, now, as I get older, you know, through my bodybuilding, I've seen some uh, lab work changes that were unfavorable, especially in the off season, not so much in the on season, but in the off season where now, as I learn more about the human body and through my master's training that I start to realize that, okay, well, what can I do for longevity? Yeah. And how can I just focus on not only living longer, but also living a better quality life as I age. I think that that's very important. And I don't think that that's something that you really think about when you're in your 20s and you're throwing around weights in the gym. You're more so concerned with, I don't know, it could be vanity. It could, for me, it was never girls. It was always, I just want to get on the stage and be the best at, at, that I can. But you start to shift in your mindset. And it's very difficult because there are moments where I'm in the gym and I'll see someone who is just jacked. And I'm like, man, I can look better than that guy. Come on. But you know, it's, yeah. it's, um, it's a difficult transition and it's something that you have to kind of constantly remind yourself and condition your mind to, okay, well, I'm doing other things now and I am achieving in other areas and it's okay. I don't know any other way to describe it. It's other than hard. Yeah. Psychologically, it weighs down on you because you have gone through your life identifying as a certain person for 10, 15 years. And then all of a sudden you are trying to shift and 
you have to portray yourself to the public and everybody around you as a different person too. And you, you really have to grow into and become that person that you're trying to become. Yeah, dude. It, like you mentioned, it's a transition. It takes time. It's difficult. But I think one really important thing that you mentioned is as long as you are pouring yourself into something else that you care about, your identity slowly starts to shift as well, right? And you remind yourself that you are achieving in other domains in your life that you weren't before, right? Like you're achieving in a lot more and you're having a lot more success with your education and your career, perhaps currently now than you were before. And I think reminding yourself of those things when you're going through a tough transition is really important. Um, I've experienced something similar two times in my life. One is right now, which I'll share, which is something silly. Um, but before, and I've shared this previously, is for me, when I was going through my PhD, my entire training was to be an academic, right? Like for people that don't know, the reason you do a PhD is you're being trained to be a professor, to be a researcher. That is what your training is in. So for four years, I had this idea that I was going to be a researcher. I was going to be well known for the science that I put out. I was going to be uh, well respected in the academic circle. And then like the more and more time I spent in that environment, uh, I realized I didn't want to be in that environment. And that's when I when I started picking up coaching and, and doing online stuff and all that stuff. But shifting was really difficult because in many aspects, I felt like, oh, I'm overqualified to do some of these things. Oh, some of my peers are going to make fun of me because I did my PhD for nothing. Like I felt like I went to school for no reason. All, all of those are like not like actual, they're not factual, right? Because at the end of the day, like the skills I learned are very transferable and it's helped me tremendously. And my credentials helped me with my career now. But it was just this idea of like, man, why did I get a PhD if I'm not going to use it for anything? And not only that, in my eyes, I was an academic, right? I was uh, a doctor, like I wanted to be respected in that way. And I was like, man, if I just coach people and help them improve their body composition, and that's all I'm doing, like, I feel like some of the stuff that I did was a waste. And I'm completely wrong with that. I don't feel like that anymore. But it was, uh, I had those feelings, I had those strong feelings at the beginning. Um, and now the more and more I do what I'm doing now, the more I put time and effort into getting better at it, the more I see them that I'm actually getting better and proficient at what I'm doing now. Um, I'm really happy. Right. And I think it's just a transition period, man, that people go through that is really difficult. The other thing I was going to share, and this one's silly, but, but it, it came to mind when you mentioned that you'll see dudes at the gym and you're like, man, I could look better than that. Or I could be bigger than that. It's, a, uh, I've always loved lifting but I used to be obsessed with basketball. And when I was 18, 19, 20, I used to play, and even in high school, I used to play probably, I don't know, two or three hours of basketball, like four or five times a week. I would finish classes, I'd finish school, and I'd go to the courts and start playing basketball. And I was really good. Um, I loved playing basketball. And then I just stopped playing basketball throughout graduate school, partially because I wanted to prioritize lifting in my education more. And the reason why I wanted to prioritize lifting more is because my knees and ankles were always hurting from basketball and all that stuff. And I was like, I'm done with this. So I stopped playing. So it's been probably four or five years since I actually played basketball intensely. And my, uh, my wife's cousin's husband is a, a pastor at a church here in Tampa, and they do a church league, basketball league. 
And of course, he calls me. He's like, hey, Joey, you want to play? And I'm like, hell yeah, I'm playing in the league, right? <laughs> so I've been super excited to get back into basketball now. And we just had our third game of the season yesterday. But I'm so out of shape. And I'm far from being like the best person on the court where I used to be like always the best dude on the court. And so now I'm like, man, I want to get the ball, but I know I can't do anything with the ball the way I used to. My ankles hurt. My knees hurt. I can barely run back and forth. And it's so tough because in my head, I'm like, shit, I want to get back into that. I want to be known as the best person on the court. Um, and those those thoughts are really difficult to deal with, man. But um, like you mentioned, understanding that that's not the person I am anymore and uh, framing it that way is really important. Yeah. I mean, I'll say this and something that you brought up kind of makes me think about something that I often think, and I, I think about this, you're familiar with Maslow's heart, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a pyramid. The bottom of the pyramid is like basic security needs. Like it's the human needs, the basic security needs, food, air, water, shelter. Um, you know, then, you know, I, I need a place to live and, and so on and so forth. And then you get to the top and you get to the top of it is purpose. And I think that's what I often think about because with bodybuilding, it was, this is my purpose. I want to be a professional bodybuilder. Who doesn't, right? Yeah. And then you start to realize that when you do shift and you develop that sense of purpose in something else, mm -hmm. I think human beings just need to be able to progress in things, or at least I do. You need to be yeah. able to progress in what you're doing and continually get better and better and better and go through the hardship hardships of that. And you need to be able to grow and develop into what you want to become, whether that be in bodybuilding or that be in your education or your career. And that I think is what it has allowed the transition is that I've accepted that I'm going to continue to develop and grow. And that's the exciting part of it. It's not of being in a certain place in yeah. your career or in your education, the most exciting part is, although it's difficult, yeah. the most exciting part to me is the journey of getting there and watching myself grow. I mean, for yeah. example, my career, I got on social media really in 2020 after the yeah. pandemic hit. If I look at my social media content from back then and yeah. I compare it to now, and there's something that I posted on a video the other day, I posted a follow button that was a, a, a graphic that had a transparent background. And I was like, man, I'm so proud of myself because I didn't know how to create that two yeah. years ago or yeah. three years ago. So with that being said, I think one of the most important things in anything that you do is that you're always growing, developing, and that is the most fulfilling feeling to me. And that is what has allowed me to transition into who I was then and what I did then and who I am now and what I'm doing now. Yeah, man, I, for me, the feel, one of the feelings that bothers me the most is stagnation in like any aspect of what I'm doing, right? Like I've always jokingly said, I'm the worst employee because an employee coming from like a nine to five job where like, you're just doing this thing every single day and there's no room for growth. And I've had jobs like that in the past. And I'm just like, not motivated to work whatsoever. Um, because the way I think about it is like, if I work hard or don't work hard, the reward is the same. So why work hard? And it's not a good mentality to have in many aspects, but what really drives me, I think similar to you is the ability to make progress and get better at whatever it is that I'm doing. Right. It's not even like the thing. It's the fact that you can get better. Right. And it's funny because one of the things I really like doing is playing video games on my off time with my buddies. And I'll only play games that 
are skill-based where you can actually get better. And it doesn't matter like what the game is. It's it's the fact that like, oh, if I play it, I will be better than it was the week before. And I think that's also a, like, uh, what's the phrase? A double-edged sword, right? Because there's positive to that because it, it keeps you moving forward and it keeps you driven, but it can also... Uh, for one, like contribute to having like an addictive personality when it comes to certain things, right? Because I do find myself in that fashion. But also it's hard to like know when it's okay to just chill back and not necessarily always be needing to progress towards something, right? Have you watched um, the new Arnold documentary on Netflix? I have not. I actually, I just saw it. I just came across it the other day, yesterday. And I, I didn't even know that it was on there. I didn't, I didn't, uh, I haven't seen it. No, dude, it's great. It's three episodes and it's about what we were, were just talking about, right? So first episode is about his bodybuilding career, how he got to the top of bodybuilding. And then he was like, well, this is boring now. What's next? And then he was like, I'm going to be the best actor. And then it's episode two, how he progressed in his acting career. And then he was literally the most famous actor in the world. And it's like, well, this is boring. What's next? Well, he cared about politics. Like, all right, politician. And it was just really cool to see his transition because what he was mentioning is very similar to what we're talking about to where he was only motivated by the ability to get better. And if he was already up top and like couldn't get better, he was like, ah, I don't really care about this anymore, which is really interesting because I feel like a lot of people, once they get there, they want to stay there. Right. And then that's where you see uh, bodybuilders or whatever. I think sports is a really good place to see this happen, but it's like the person's at the top and then they stay there for a little too long and then towards the end of their career they kind of fall off and then they're remembered for like the end of their career versus like the highlight of their career unfortunately right um but yeah man interesting stuff i wanted to talk a little bit now uh going specifically into some some science-based stuff right because you work with clients i work with clients i think a lot of the stuff that we've been mentioning here is very applicable in terms of mindsets for clients right in terms of having the mindset of being okay with delayed gratification, striving to get a little bit better every day, even though it may not be a perfect day. But I really want to talk about perhaps what are some of the, because at the end of the day, you you have to work hard, but you also have to work smart, right? You don't necessarily just want to be chipping away and you're chipping away in the wrong direction, perhaps, right? So when you work with a client, what are some of the common like mistakes that you see? And perhaps what are some of the, the like low hanging fruit that people miss that are really easy things to do that can be a really huge benefit to somebody's health and body composition. So I think a low-hanging fruit for somebody would be just as simple as add a source of protein that you enjoy to your breakfast every day and make that a habit and do it continuously day to day. And that could be a yogurt, that could be a cottage cheese, that can be eggs, egg whites. It could really be anything you want. As long as you're doing that on a consistent basis, that gets you in the habit of kind of centering your meal around your protein. And for someone who's, for example, in a calorie deficit, having protein at each meal is going to allow them to feel more satiated and therefore eat less calories and adhere to their program. Yeah, certainly. I mean, protein is incredibly important, right? And like you were mentioning, most people underestimate their protein intake. Um, I know. I do that even sometimes still, right? Where I'm like, man, did I really get 200 grams of protein today? And when I start to think about it, I'm like, probably not. But I usually think I probably hit that mark. And for those that are listening, the, the big importance with protein is that it really helps with satiety and hunger regulation. I think that's 
one really, really important component that people often don't think about because we think about protein, we're like, oh, building muscle. But aside from building muscle, it does really help you stay full and satiated. I was reading some really interesting research where I think they took overweight and obese women, gave them a standardized breakfast and lunch. After the lunch, they gave them a standardized snack. Uh, all of the snacks were isocaloric, meaning they had the same amount of calories. The difference was that one snack was a high protein snack. The other two snacks were high carb, high fat snacks, low protein. All of the snacks were 100 calories or like 120 calories or something like that. And those that consume the high protein snack uh, using what's it called the visual analog scale mentioned that they felt fuller after the snack. Why does that matter? Well, after that, they gave them an ad lib dinner. And in general, the women that consumed the high protein snack ate like 100 to 150 calories less at dinner, right? These are not women that are tracking their calories. This is simply behavioral stuff. If you have foods that help you feel a little bit fuller, you're likely to eat a little bit less. And protein is incredibly important for that. I, I agree with you. I think that is the number one low hanging fruit for most people. Most people do not follow a high protein diet. Perhaps it's because of the RDA. We could talk about that slightly. And perhaps it's because sometimes people just don't prefer high protein foods. I think there's a lot of stigma around high protein foods, meat in particular being quote unquote bad for you. And there's a lot of nuance there that we can get into as well. But simply just increasing your protein intake, right? The data do show that if you just eat a little bit more protein, you're likely to eat a little bit less in terms of total calories. Um, another nutrient I really want to talk about because... I've always focused on, and most people just focus on protein, right? But what's the other nutrient that is extremely beneficial and satiating as well and has a ton of health benefits? Fiber, right? And I feel like fiber is like the ugly duckling. Like it's not that sexy because it doesn't help you build a ton of muscle or anything like that. Um, but it's incredibly important, man. Do you want to touch on fiber a little bit? General recommendations, RDA, why it's important, yeah. health, all yeah. that stuff? Absolutely. I think fiber... It actually is sexy when you get into, it wasn't until I got into graduate school and I started getting into fiber and the effects yeah. on the microbiome and short chain fatty acids and how those affect you and, you know, decreased risk of, uh, you know, certain types of cancer, specifically colon cancer. So I really do think if you really get into fiber, I do think that it is just as sexy as protein is, if yeah. not more. Maybe but, you and I do, but I, I would say that most people don't. Yeah, right. <laughs> but, um, from a recommendation standpoint, yeah, I always recommend doing, I mean, the general recommendation for fiber intake is 25 grams per day for women and 35 grams per day for men, or you can say 14, yeah, 14 grams, yeah. right? It's 14 grams. I was like, this is 10 or 14, 14 grams for every thousand calories that you're eating. I would prefer to do it based on calories because it just makes sense. You're digesting more calories and you're eating equal parts of fiber. I think fiber is one that gets underlooked. And it's an, it's interesting because from a coaching standpoint, when you really look at it, yeah, there are some fruits and vegetables that are very high in fiber, but the best bang for your buck that you're going to get is from eating more whole grains. So a simple switch, switching from white rice to brown rice, eating more quinoa, eating whole wheat pasta versus regular pasta. Now, obviously there are going to be some taste preferences there and you may yeah. enjoy some things over others, but just as a general rule of thumb, consuming more whole grains, eating adequate fruits and vegetables, those are going to be tremendous for your satiety and tremendous for your results. And not to mention the micronutrient standpoint, you're eating, you're getting a lot more 
nutrient density when you're consuming some of these foods. Hey guys, some of you may not know that I'm the scientific advisor for a supplement company called Outwork Nutrition. I help with the formulation of new products to help ensure that they're effective and backed by science. Unlike many other supplement companies out there, we don't rely on exaggerated claims or flashy marketing tactics. Instead, we let the science speak for itself. We take pride in formulating products that deliver real results, helping you achieve your fitness goals in a meaningful way. If you're in the market for supplements like protein powder, pre-workout, or recovery products, make sure to check us out at outworknutrition.com. And as a thank you for being an avid listener of this podcast, use code Joey for an exclusive discount at checkout. You can find the link to our website down in the description of this podcast episode. Remember, our goal is to empower you with science-backed supplements that truly make a difference. Choose Outwork Nutrition and elevate your fitness to new heights. Yeah, and if I could add to that as well, legumes, beans, right? Like, those are my favorite sources because I'm I'm not a big fan of like whole wheat stuff unless it's whole wheat bread. But like rice, I just always have white rice because personally, I just hate brown rice, man. <laughs> I come from a Cuban background. We we eat white rice and beans with pretty much every meal, but I do eat a good amount of beans. I love beans, lentils, black beans, chickpeas, whatever it is. And they're really high in fiber as well. Unfortunately, I feel like, I don't know, beans are not as popular in the US as they are in other countries. Uh, like my culture, we eat beans with every single meal. Part of that comes from poverty and it's a cheap food and it's just something that everybody has access to. It's a good, good source of protein, good source of fiber. Um, but it, it's funny because like a lot of these very poor countries actually have pretty healthy, like dietary patterns, right? Eating more pulses, eating more whole grains, things that are really, really cheap, but do have a ton of health benefits. Um, I'd love for you to highlight what are some of the health benefits of fiber? You mentioned satiety and hunger regulation, but aside from that. Yeah. So from a digestion standpoint, um, we know that soluble fiber, for example, things like inulin that's found in like garlic and wheat. Uh, will feed the quote unquote kind of good bacteria. Yeah. And those bacteria will create short chain fatty acids that mm. will yield energy. This is kind of where we get into like, well, net carbs, are they really a thing? Yeah. Not really. But those short chain fatty acids. You mind explaining that a little bit? Sorry, because I'm sure people the, just the heard net that carbs. Like, Wait, what does that mean? Yeah. 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 So net carbs, uh, the FDA allows net carbs to be on a label as you basically subtract the calories from fiber. From the total calories that are on the label. So for example, if you have a protein bar that's also high fiber, 15 grams of fiber, whatever those calories are, are going to be subtracted from the label. The issue with that is that the fiber actually does get broken down. It's just that we don't have, our bodies don't have the enzymes to break down the yeah. bonds between those chains. So what happens is our microbiome, they actually consume that, they ferment it, and then they create short chain fatty acids. So essentially they're creating fat and then those fats can yield energy and calories. Now, most of those, most of that energy actually goes into your colonocytes or the, the cells inside of your colon um, to you know, reproduce ATP, uh, increase cell proliferation, things of that sort, which is also wildly beneficial. But the point with the net carbs is really more so that we don't know is the issue. We don't know how many calories are actually being extracted because yeah. for example, some people have uh, what's called a strain of bacteria called firmicutes, which will yield more calories from the foods that they're breaking down and other people have less of that and they'll yield less calories. So just to be safe, 
because you don't know what your microbiome is, and it's so different from person to person, I would just say those net carbs, if you're looking at your calories, just add them in there. And that will help you to create, you know, it's always better to overestimate than it is to underestimate when it comes to weight loss at, at the very least. Yeah, I think what you mentioned in terms of like, we don't know exactly how many calories you're going to get here uh, from this fiber. And it's going to be different from person to person, depending on what your microbiome looks like. But the important thing to note is that you're not getting zero calories, right? And that's the way net carbs are being reported, right? It's like, oh, 10 grams of fiber, just subtract 40 calories. You're not getting those at all. And that's not true, right? And now... I don't want people that are listening to hyper focus on this because if you're eating high fiber foods, great. You're in a good place. Don't worry about the 40 calories. But if we're being as accurate as possible, you're definitely not getting zero calories from consuming it. You might be getting anywhere between two or three calories per gram rather than four. It's certainly going to be less than a simple carbohydrate, but certainly it's not going to be zero. Now, for those of you listening that are perhaps perfectionists, don't worry about trying to figure out the exact amount. As long as you track the same way consistently, you're good, right? Because let's say you track net carbs the way they are reported, and now you're like, oh my God, I'm underreporting by, I don't know, 100 or 150 calories per day. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter as long as you do it consistently the same way. If you're not seeing the changes that you want to see, just reduce the caloric intake that you're consuming and continue to track the same way. What matters with tracking is consistency, because if there are errors in your tracking, which there's errors in everybody's tracking, those errors stay consistent over time if you track the same way and eat the same foods. So it may not be perfect, like the number may not be accurate, but at least you're precise with the way you're measuring. And that's probably the best way to, to move forward, right? And so from a digestive standpoint, fiber is incredibly important. I think people don't also don't understand that one of the best things that you can do for improving blood lipids and lowering cholesterol is eating more fiber, right? People like to hate on saturated fat, red meat, et cetera. But if you also just eat more fiber, you're probably going to be in a good place and fiber consumption can help reduce LDL cholesterol, which is really important as well, right? So talking a little bit more science here too, it's like you have this stuff in your intestines that you secrete called bile, B-I-L-E, which helps with the emulsification and digestion of, of fat, right? Now, there's a lot of cholesterol in bile and bile is recycled. Right. So when you produce feces, you actually recycle some of that bile and the bile can be reused. And again, as I just mentioned, bile is high in cholesterol. Well, when you consume fiber, you actually excrete a good amount of the bile in your feces. Right. So essentially, you're getting rid of cholesterol by consuming more fiber, which is a really easy and simple way to help reduce your cholesterol levels if they are elevated. Right. Now, one thing I always like to mention is like, because people start to really hyper-focus on these like hacks or whatnot. It's like, listen, if you're overweight or you're obese, if you're not physically active, those things are going to give you the biggest bang for your buck. Simply losing excess body fat, being more physically active will improve your blood lipids to a greater extent than reducing your saturated fat intake or increasing your fiber. But a combination of those variables is really powerful, right? Like if you start exercising, if you start losing a little bit of weight, you notice that, hey, my cholesterol is still a little bit high. Now I start eating a little bit more fiber. Now I start substituting saturated fats for perhaps unsaturated fat sources. You're going to get the biggest synergistic effect there, right? And then on top of that, I guess, dude, we could talk about fiber forever. If there's one nutrient that is associated with a reduced risk of pretty much everything, 
diabetes, cardiovascular disease, cancer, Absolutely. which is really interesting, and even all-cause mortality, it is fiber, right? Now, one thing I'm not well aware of, Daron, and you may or may not be, and if you're not, that's fine. We could perhaps research it for another episode. But when it comes to the cross-sectional data showing like benefits of higher fiber consumption with a reduced risk of these diseases, is there a cutoff or is more fiber always better? And the reason I ask is because protein, people tend to think more protein is better. And it's like, no, like if you have sufficient protein, you're good. More protein isn't necessarily better. Is there a similar effect with fiber there? I don't know. And I don't know how that would affect digestion either, Yeah, right? Yeah. Obviously that's going to affect you if you have too much fiber, that can affect you. In some cases it would actually be like fiber helps with your bowels, but in some cases too much fiber may have the reverse effect. Yeah. So, yeah. but outside of that from health outcomes, I don't know. There hasn't been any data where I've seen like a cap. Yeah. Yeah. Same here. And I honestly just haven't looked into it too deeply, but I will say anecdotally, I've experienced what you mentioned working with clients where they have low fiber intake. We have a conversation about how important fiber is. And then the week after they're like, man, I haven't gone to the bathroom and they're reporting their fiber. And it's like 70, 80 grams per day. And I'm like, holy shit, dude, you just went from like 10 to 15 grams to like 70 or 80 grams. It's That's a huge shift, right? And they're like supplementing with fiber and all this stuff. And like, great. I love the effort, like A for effort, but execution probably wasn't the best. And I'd say for most people, it's probably best to titrate up, right? Like not go from zero to 100 real quick, but like Drake says, to do it slowly because yeah, you do. I mean, if you're not used to eating a high fiber diet, you do feel it, right? Bloating, yeah. constipation. Because one of the things that I try to explain to people, it's like your biology, the way your body works, at least let's talk about from a metabolism and digestion standpoint, your body adapts to whatever your diet looks like, right? So like the microbes in your microbiome and even down to like the enzymes that your body is producing more of is going to be specific to the type of diet that you follow. So it may take some time for your body to adjust to a higher fiber intake and for your digestion to adjust to a higher fiber intake. This is one thing that people also experience when they're going on a higher protein diet, right? Perhaps somebody that doesn't eat much meat at all is now eating substantially more meat so that they can get their protein intake. They're like, man, my digestion's a little bit off. It's like, just stick with it. It takes a little bit of time. It's probably why it's best to just titrate up slowly. What are your thoughts about that? Uh, titrating up with protein? Or just in general? With, with fiber in particular. Yeah, with fiber, I think it does take, especially when you look at it from a microbiome standpoint, it does yeah. take time for your microbial composition or certain colonies to populate even further. So yeah. you want to give your body time and your, I, I think the microbiome, obviously a huge topic, but it is something that's very important when it comes to digestion and how your digestive system functions. You know, it's just interesting people talk about, um, you know, like serotonin and dopamine that are made in the hormones that are made in the gut. And we often think about those things as, oh, well, that can affect the brain. But actually what we find is that they never make it to the brain. They, they have a function in the gut. And that function is to do things like increase gut motility and so on and so forth. So when we think about, okay, well, there are certain types of bacteria that will increase motility. It takes time for them to populate as you make these dietary adjustments. And that could be said for any dietary adjustment. If you increase your protein, that's going to affect yeah. your microbiome. If you increase your fiber, it's going to do the same thing. So 
Short answer is yes, you definitely do want to titrate up over a period of time and let your body adjust. Yeah. Dude, it's really interesting. So I know the microbiome is like a super hot topic right now. And to be honest, it's not an area that I'm very well versed in, mainly for the reason that I feel like we don't necessarily know all that much about it yet. I know you're well more versed in that literature than I am. I'd love for you to share perhaps, because there's so much confusion about this stuff. What are some of like the biggest myths that people talk about regarding the microbiome that you see on social media that are just like, hey, I see where you're going, but like, we can't say that conclusively. And then also, what are some like really interesting things that you're seeing when it comes to microbiome research? So the first one I'll say is the thing that I just brought up was the the concept of these neurotransmitter hormones kind of that yeah they it's like well that's going to make you feel good right people say that all the time well okay yeah. dopamine serotonin they make you they're feel good hormones they're happy hormones so if i make them in the gut and i feed my microbiome they're going to produce those things my gut's going to produce those things and i'm going to feel better and that's a huge misconception because those particles aren't large enough to make it through the blood brain barrier so they don't make it to the brain and we have to start to realize that they do serve a function directly in the gut so the hormones that are made in the gut are used by the gut that's cool however what i will say is that so there are three major short chain fatty acids that are produced by your microbiome there's propionate acetate and there's butyrate and butyrate is like the rock star amongst the three because we know there are loads of health benefits when it comes to butyrate what we do find, although we're uncertain about the actual function, what we find is that some of those short chain fatty acids will make it through the bloodstream and are actually small enough to cross the blood brain barrier. Mm. And they may have an impact on how the brain functions. So is there a possibility that you'll be in a better mood because you're taking care of your gut health and your microbiome? Yes, absolutely. But it's not the way that people generally think about it or the, we, people, the way that people generally speak about it. Yeah, no, that's really interesting, man. It's, you know, my PhD professor um, was the person who discovered that there are estrogen receptors in the gut as well. And that's where like people started researching, well, what's the function of estrogen in the gut, right? So it is cool because we tend to think of particular molecules having effects on just one particular organ system. And it's like, no we probably just don't know everything about it, right? And like, that's one thing you start to learn, like when you get into stuff, it's like, yo, we know so little. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you is in terms of claims being made on social media when it comes to the microbiome, because these claims are really strong, right? Like, oh, you shouldn't eat this food because it has this negative effect on the microbiome, or you should eat this food because it has a very positive effect on the microbiome. And with the exception of fiber, because we know that fiber is very beneficial. Are we in a place in terms of like scientific knowledge where we can strongly say that we should or shouldn't eat particular foods based on its effect on the microbiome and then extrapolate that and say that it's going to have a negative effect on your health based off of these changes that are occurring on the microbiome. Absolutely not. I don't think we yeah. are. Um, I think that, you know, for example, artificial sweeteners, people yeah. talk about they wreck your microbiome or they, they cause, they disrupt your microbiome, I think is a, is a word that people yeah. often throw around. Well, let's define disruption. What does that even mean? Does it slightly alter your microbiome? Yes, but everything that you eat will alter your microbiome, like we're saying. So 
Now, the question of blood glucose homeostasis, that has come up in research within the last few years. Are there changes in the gut microbiome and certain strains of bacteria that will alter blood glucose homeostasis? I would say kind of inconclusive right now. However, it does seem like there's a trend towards, yes, it might be, but that's kind of like the example of picking up pebbles, dropping a boulder to pick up a pebble, right? And then people get hyper-focused on, well, I shouldn't have artificial sweeteners. Well, if artificial sweeteners are going to help you to lose weight and you're switching from regular soda to diet soda, and we know that sugar also affects the microbiome in certain ways, and sugar will more drastically affect your blood glucose homeostasis than an artificial sweetener would, or the changes in the microbiome brought on by the artificial sweetener, then, you know, you have to kind of look at it as, well, what does the big picture look like? And then later on down the road, if I want to focus on some of those little things, then I can, but I I don't think that we need to really focus on those little tiny things that I don't think they're going to end up mattering down the road as much as we think, yes, are they going to have some impact? Absolutely. But there are things that are going to have a much larger impact. Yeah, man. So I love that you brought that up, right? Because yeah, people tend to hyper-focus on specific little things and they don't think like, the thing is all these things are integrated and one thing influences the other, right? Like you mentioned, sure, artificial sweeteners may have this effect, but if they help with weight loss, that has a greater benefit. And it's thinking of like these second and third order like effects, right? Whereas we just tend to focus on the one thing and never consider what other things may be going on. And the way my professor used to explain this, he used to say like, oh, like as a scientific community, we uh, hyper-focus on like a leaf and we're missing the health of the forest. Right, which is what you mentioned in terms of like zooming out and looking at the big picture thing. Um, I think, and and tell me if I'm wrong here. When it comes to like microbiome research, we understand certain shifts that occur with different dietary patterns, with different lifestyle habits, with exercise. We understand that there are particular shifts. We have categorized some of those shifts in terms of saying like these particular bacteria may be increasing with these behaviors. These may be decreasing these types of bacteria may have these beneficial effects, these may have these potential negative effects, but there is no causality established yet, at least not strong causality, correct? No, there are, I guess, weaker correlations yeah. as as of right now. Yeah, and-, and I'm sure it's just really complicated, man, because there is so much going on, right? Are you tired of spending countless hours grocery shopping, cooking, and preparing your meals? I get it. Time is precious, and that's where Icon Meals comes into play. I've partnered with Icon Meals to bring you delicious, macro-friendly, and high-protein meals that will make it easier than ever for you to achieve your fitness goals. I understand that you may have hesitations over the cost of a meal prep service compared to cooking food at home. But let's face it, how often do you spend more money eating out because you didn't have time to prepare your food at home anyways? With Icon Meals, you not only save time, but you invest in your health. These meals are carefully crafted to be healthier and more in line with your fitness goals than most of the food that you eat out anyways. So why wait? Visit iconmeals.com and explore their wide array of mouth-watering meals. And as a special bonus for listening to this podcast, use code JOSEPH10 at checkout for a special discount off of your order. By the way, you can find all of the necessary links 
in the description of this podcast. Don't let time be a barrier to your success. Choose Icon Meals and fuel your journey towards a healthier, fitter you. There's a lot to identify. I mean, if you look at it, like I think about it like this, the human genome project and how much that took. And then we later on found out with the research that, oh, well, it's not just about genes, it's about gene expression. And now we're still trying to uncover a lot of those things. Yeah. And so kind of the same thing with the, and, and this is happening right now in real time, is this human microbiome project where we're like, okay, we need to identify all of these different types of bacteria, but we need to identify the different bacteria within those colonies of bacteria. And then we also need to identify, okay, what are the functions and what are the roles of these specific bacteria? And, you know, when it comes to things like people talk about probiotics all the time. Probiotics are a difficult one for me because yes, some of them may produce a benefit, but we also know that if a bacteria doesn't, your body can reject it. If a bacteria doesn't live in you from um, an inheritance kind of standpoint, then it may not stay there and it will be transient. So in order to get that potential benefit from the bacteria that you're consuming through a probiotic supplement, you may have to continuously take that. So it may not be feasible for you. I'll give you a perfect example. I had an interview on my podcast with um, Dr. Sarah Campbell from Rutgers University, and she was talking about the Villanella studies that happened with the Boston Marathon. And what they find is that specific strains of bacteria, they help with anaerobic output, right? So they help to increase performance. And when you put that, when you bottle it up, you put it in a supplement, it doesn't produce that outcome. And what that tells me from a microbiome standpoint is that these runners are actually producing an environment where these types of bacteria can thrive and that's why they have it. But supplementing with it, you don't have the environment already where they can thrive. So you're going to have to do the work in order to create that environment for them. Dude, Sarah Campbell graduated from my lab at FSU. Oh yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. She was, I loved having her on the podcast. She was phenomenal. Yeah. She graduated a couple of years before I did, a good amount of years before I did. But she's a little bit more established in her career now, right? Yeah, well, I mean, she's in the research lab. She's in the exercise science kinesiology department. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I, I'm 99% sure we're talking about the same Sarah Campbell. We'll confirm after. Okay. So for those <laughs> listening, I might be wrong, but I think I'm 99% right. <laughs> but that's awesome, man. Yeah, I think you explained that beautifully, right? Which is, I, w- I think you would agree that in terms of gut health, prebiotics are more important, right? Because you're actually feeding the important bacteria yeah. in your gut. And Absolutely. Just be I fine. mean, look at things like, I'll put it in quotes, leaky gut, because leaky gut is not a medical diagnosis. It's not recognized medically in the literature. Leaky gut refers to intestinal hyperpermeability. Mm-hmm. And essentially what you have Explain is- Explain that, yeah. So what you have is you have these tight junctions in between the cells of your intestines, your intestinal cells. And they have the ability to open and close. and they only should be letting in certain particles of a certain size. There are ways to test this. Like, for example, if you use a lactulose mannitol, um, they call it a dual sugar probe, where if you see somebody has increased intestinal permeability, they'll swallow these sugar probes. And what you excrete out, the ratio of lactulose to mannitol, you will see this person has increased hyperpermeability. Mm-hmm. I think that's to some degree that's normal. Like for example, when we look at high intensity exercise, Mm. that tends to increase the permeability. 
we don't necessarily know why. So one of the issues when it comes to looking at topics like leaky gut or intestinal permeability, as the research would call it, one of the issues is that like we don't really fully understand why that's occurring. Yeah. We know that there may be some dysfunction there. Yeah. But we don't know, we don't understand it fully. And the recommendations for like, for example, I've seen people, a lot of like holistic practitioners will say, well, glutamine helps with gut health. And then I'll say, okay, well, let's look at the research on that. Yes, if you're deficient in glutamine, it helps to decrease permeability, which means that you're letting in less particles or smaller particles. So there is a benefit. But when you look at somebody, like we look at glutamine as what? It's a conditionally essential amino acid. So under certain conditions, it would be beneficial. But just taking glutamine because, and you're not deficient, which you're likely not, yeah, it's it's not going to have a benefit on you, but it always goes back to okay, the unsexy nutrient, which is fiber, yeah, which is the most beneficial thing you can do for intestinal permeability, and even the science says we we're still inconclusive on whether or not that's a bad thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm yeah, and and to what degree, right, right? Because is some good? Is some? It's the same thing as like with a. Uh, with cholesterol, people are like, okay, high cholesterol is bad. Let's drive it down to zero. It's like, that's not a smart thing to do either, right? Yeah. Because cholesterol serves as a precursor for a number of things. And there's just no evidence that you're healthier, the lower your cholesterol goes. Like, what would be the benefit of getting cholesterol to zero, right? It could, it, it's a similar type of, I think, uh, relationship there, perhaps with things like gut permeability. And like you mentioned, we just don't necessarily know. And these are all really complex topics that take a really long time to really discern, right? If if we ever even get to the bottom of it, because I really do think, and this is why I like nerding out about this stuff and just having conversations about it, just like people like nerding about like the purpose of life or whatever it is. It's funny, like I put up a video yesterday on my stories of me doing uh, dumbbell chest press. And I was like, oh, the one tens are feeling easy. Been doing these for two or three months. Next week, going to the one fifteens, and then. Uh, hopefully going up from there. And this guy messaged me. He goes, why do you do that? And I was like, oh, because I enjoy it. And it positively impacts my life. And he was like, well, why? Uh, and he, we were just going back and forth for a good 10 minutes. And he just like pretty much kept asking why. And I was like, well, I like having these conversations because we're just, what's the term? Sorry for the language, guys. Doing some mental masturbation, right? Like just going back and forth. <laughs> it makes uh, you feel good. Yeah, it's it's fun. It's interesting. But it doesn't really necessarily uh, produce anything um, productive, right? Because you can always ask why and go further. And I feel like in many aspects, we can treat science in the same way, right? Where it's like, for the most part, we know the big picture things, right? And simply just focusing on the big picture things will give you the biggest benefit towards your health, body composition, et cetera. But we always want to know why. And there's nothing wrong with knowing why, right? Obviously, as humans, we're curious. Like you mentioned, we want to progress. We want to find out why. But in science in particular, when you have one question, you find out the why of that one question, you have 10 more whys. So you never actually like fully understand something, right? It's like we can even say this about protein. As much as we know about protein, people are like, well, is it one gram per pound of body weight or is it 1.6? And in what situations and why? And it's like, 
we get so, so granular, right? And then, oh, protein timing doesn't matter to what extent? And it's like, some people say it doesn't matter. Some people say it does matter to a certain extent. And, oh, then how much, right? And it's like, you can always just keep going and nerding out, which is great because it's fun to talk about these things if you like them. But at the end of the day, again, I feel like a lot of people tend to hyper-focus on this stuff and miss just the big picture stuff, right? Yeah, I mean, the big picture stuff matters. You know what you just got me thinking about was the, um, I learned a lot this semester about, I took this nutritional aspects of disease course mm. and it was probably in my top three favorite courses of my graduate work because cool. all of the research, and I was talking to my professor in lab about this, like, man, I love that class. She's, I'm like, it was so up to date with the research. She's like, yeah, that's the purpose of that class. All of the research was from 2020 on. Nice. Uh, and it was amazing because I learned so much. And one of the things that we talked about is personalized and precision nutrition which is the concept of tailoring nutrition to your genes. Like if you have specific alleles for certain diseases mm -hmm. and it reminds me of the big picture because every time I saw different alleles for different like precursors for a disease, I'd look at it and I'd say, well, the recommendations, you know how there's, there are companies now that will do genetic yeah. testing and then spit out a diet for you. Quickly, Jerome, do you mind explaining what an allele is so people understand? So it's a, it's a variant in a gene that it's like a gene polymorphism, like which essentially is just a variant that will, um, is slightly different that will alter a health outcome. I guess that's the best way I can explain it. Is that correct? Yeah. Accurate? Okay. Yeah. So with that being said, my point is that with this, like with these companies that do this testing, I think it's just, we're not even there yet, I think. And also the recommendations never change. It's always, well, decrease your saturated yeah. fat, increase your fiber intake, exercise more. It's not, it's not, at the end of the day, I think we're never going to stray far away from the recommendations as they sit right now. We may minor, make minor tweaks, for example, to certain nutrients, maybe vitamin D might change. Maybe that the RDA for certain nutrients will change. I certainly think, personally, I believe that the RDA for protein needs to change. But yeah, I, I think outside of the basic foundation, the fundamentals of nutrition, I think will always be the fundamentals of nutrition. And that is really what we need to focus on. Yeah, because our physiology doesn't change, right? So at the end of the day, the fundamentals are what are going to give you the majority of the benefits. And not the majority, like all the benefits, really. Yeah. Uh, there are some small things. Supplements play a small role, but it's it's minimal, right? Uh, my buddy Pat likes to explain it this way, where it's like hierarchy of important supplements being at the top, like saying, even if a supplement works amazingly, the benefit that you're going to get of that supplement is just minimal compared to all of these lifestyle changes, right? And then just to bring everything back to uh, applicability and coaching, since that's kind of where we started the conversation and we went in a million different directions nerding out about this stuff. Although there are a million different things that we're looking at in the scientific community to understand why these things may be beneficial, why certain diseases may occur, what the relationship is between nutrients and diseases. Because I took a, a graduate level epigenetics class and that was super interesting too, just learning about how different nutrients affect gene expression, right? Like methylation of your DNA and all of that cool stuff. But like you mentioned, it comes down to the same stuff, right? It's like, okay, we know that gene expression matters, right? It's not like, what is your DNA matters, but what is your DNA expressing matters more. And we know that the food influences what your DNA expresses. And we know that there are good things to express and there are bad things to express. And then the ultimate question is, 
okay, well, what can we do to express the good things and not express the bad things? It's like the stuff we already know, right? Yeah. So when you work with clients, maybe share five to seven of like the biggest things that you recommend your clients to focus on, right? We talked about protein and fiber. Let's group that as as one thing, right? Because I, I do think from a nutrient perspective, macronutrient perspective, that is the number one thing, right? Protein, Absolutely. fiber, number yep. one. And obviously fat's important too, but most people get sufficient fat in their diet anyways. What are some of the other big picture things? Yeah. So one of the things that I always like to say, and I tell my clients this all the time, I will never tell you to remove a food. I will always tell you to add things Yeah. because I don't want to be restrictive with them. But some of the things that I talk to that I think will bring tremendous benefits that are hugely underestimated is just walking, just moving more. I say humans, human beings were meant to move. I, I did a podcast about, on this not too long ago. When you look at tribes that still live in the Amazon today and you track them through GPS and you see how much they move, it signifies how much we should move. They walk on average 10, 12, 14,000 steps a day. I think mm. mo- moving, now I tell my, I always meet people where they are and I say, well, how much are you walking now? Let's just track your average for a week yeah. and let's see where, we, where there's some area of, of opportunity. That's 4,000, cool. Let's go up to 5,000 or 6,000. And meet you where you are. I don't expect you to overnight get in a tremendous amount of steps because that may be a huge psychological burden to you. Yeah. And I think one of the other pieces is I think resistance training is wildly important. And I really don't care how much you do it between somewhere between three and five is the sweet spot. If you're doing a minimum of three days a week, that's fine. And I will also say that I would like people to get some form of higher intensity cardio probably around once a week. So from an, an activity standpoint, those are the things that I really tell people to focus on the most. And then outside of that, it's really eat the foods that you enjoy within the parameters that we're setting here, focusing on if your goal is fat loss, focusing on not going beyond a certain boundary. Let's say I, if I say to somebody, well, your goal is the target is like 2000, but you can eat anywhere from you know 1800 to... 2,200. As long as you're in that range, you'll be fine. And if your goal is, hey, I want to build lean mass and we want to put you in a small surplus, the same rule applies, only you're in a surplus instead of focusing on being a deficit. And then there are some parameters that you want to focus on. Um, But those are really the basic things that I generally focus on with clients. Yeah. I usually add one more thing in there and it's aside from protein and fiber, just focusing as much as you can on eating whole foods. Yes. Yes. When we look at the literature, like if you just eat whole foods, you'll likely eat less because they're more satiating. They're not hyper palatable. The research clearly shows that even if like calories presented and nutrients presented are the same, you tend to just eat more calories if the foods are more processed. And again, not saying processed foods are bad. Obviously, they're just very easy to overeat. So they contribute to higher caloric intake. And I think everybody's goal is to figure out what their diet should look like in terms of proportion of whole foods to perhaps more processed foods, right? Like how many of them can you include and still feel good and make progress towards your goals or even maintain your body weight if that's your goal currently? Because those things shift with level of physical activity, with level of self-restraint, with all of those things, right? So to tell somebody like 80% whole foods, 20% processed foods is, I think, a fine recommendation, but it's silly in many ways because it depends, right? Like for example, Last night after playing basketball, I had lifted for an hour and a half earlier in the day and then at night played basketball for an hour, was gassed. I had a 
double quarter pounder with cheese and I had a McCrispy from McDonald's, right? About 1200 calories. I never do that. But yesterday I didn't eat much. I was starving. I was like, how can I get an easy 1000 calories? I need at least 1000 calories. McDonald's. And I probably got 50 grams of protein there, right? So it's all strategic. I'd say yesterday, more than 20% of my diet came from hyper uh, or ultra processed foods, but it was purposeful, right? But in general, consuming more whole foods, independent of what they are, is going to be beneficial. People tend to say like, restrict this particular type of whole food or that particular type of whole food, dairy, gluten, whatever it may be. And the truth is, if we look at the literature, a higher diverse, a higher nutritional diversity is associated with better health outcomes. So like all these diets that unnecessarily restrict certain foods arguably are going against what healthy nutritional patterns seem to be, right? Like if you can include more whole foods rather than restricting certain whole foods, you're probably going to be in a better place because the way I like to think about it is whole foods in particular don't necessarily have any negative health effects outside of the context of the entire diet, right? If you're overeating, sure, not good. But all whole foods have unique benefits, right? Like dairy is high in calcium, beef is high in iron, right? Like Certain foods have unique health benefits. And if you cut out a whole food group for no reason, you're not going to get those health benefits to the same extent as if you were eating those whole foods. So those are the main things I say too, man. Be physically active, most important thing. Resistance train, walk. Those are the two. Like if people don't want to do cardio, all right, whatever. I might be biased there. I don't like cardio all that much. I do think one session at high intensity has tremendous cardiovascular benefits and for longevity in particular, since you were talking about that. Lifting for reducing the risk of sarcopenia, right? Age-related loss of bone mass just looking jacked is awesome and staying active just by walking, right? And then nutrition, focus on protein and fiber, focus on whole foods. And if you can have a regular meal schedule, if your schedule allows, that's super helpful as well. I think those are pretty much the main practical pieces of advice, man. I'm really happy you shared those. Uh, I want to finish off by asking you one more thing. Yeah. What's next for you, bro? After you finish up your master's, what do you think you want to do next? I know you probably don't know 100%, but what are some thoughts? I don't. Well, first thing I want... uh once I get my, I'm going to get my dietetic license, obviously. Yeah. Uh, that's the first thing on my list. And I'm moving. So I'll be moving. And you and I have spoke about this and you're like, yeah. dude, I'm going to visit you in Colorado. Um, I'm mo- going to move from New York to Colorado is my, Denver is my goal. Well, dude, Denver just beat the Miami Heat. So I don't know if I'm ever going to go there. <laughs> you have to. It's uh, just being out West in the mountains. Like I visited Big Sky, Montana this year and you just look and it's just miles and miles of beautiful yeah. mountains with snow on top. Like it's just the most beautiful views you will ever see. And I, I want to wake up to that every day. Yeah, yeah, So yeah. No, it's nice for sure. I'm definitely moving. And I had wanted to, initially what I wanted to do was go straight into a PhD program. Mm-hmm. And what I realized is that I have a lot to work on from a business standpoint on building and growing my business. And I also realized that school, even now, it takes a lot of time away from me being able to grow my business. It's difficult to balance multiple things, but they all kind of feed into each other, right? So it's all part of the big picture for me. So I think down the road, there will be potentially, I don't want to say 100% because you never really know, but there is the potential that there will be, I would love to get a PhD when I'm going to do it. I don't know. Uh, Really more so not because I want to work in academia, although I do love teaching. It's one of the things that I love doing. My mother's a teacher. My brother's a teacher. My mom's whole family, family, right? They're all teachers. So I think it's to some extent, I don't know, maybe there's an allele for that. Like 
It's yeah. definitely, it's in my blood. Um, I love educating people, which is why I do it on social media now. And so would I teach? Yes, but I don't think that that would ultimately be 100% what I'm doing because I'm also passionate about growing in business and learning about that. So for me, I mean, I guess, I don't know if that answered your question, but that's yeah. where, what I'm thinking in terms of the direction right now. And uh, there is another company that I'm working on right now. We're working on developing a food product. Can't say what it is right now, but if we can do it, it's, it's gonna, I think it's going to be really great. It's going to be really promising. So we'll see what happens in that area. Yeah, man, that's exciting, dude. You've got a lot going on, dude. And I, I mean, I'm younger than you, so it's funny that you even say this, but like when I was in your position in like getting my degree, I didn't really know what the next step was. And like my general thought has always been like, well, I just look at the options I have available to me at the moment and just pick the best one without giving it too much thought. Because at the end of the day, there's so many things out of our control, man. But what I do know for sure is that I know you'll continue to grow, dude. You're super passionate. You're super intelligent. You're humble. You're a nice guy. I'm super proud to call you my friend, and I'm excited to see you continue growing, man. Thank you for being here today. Would you mind sharing with everybody where they can find you if they wanted to work with you, if they want to listen to your podcast, all that good stuff? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, website is eatrightnutrition.com, and eat right is kind of spelled like Rite Aid, so it's E-A-T-R-I-T-E nutrition.com, and, and the Instagram is also eatrightnutrition. Yeah. And if you want to find our podcast, you can either click the link in my bio or you can just Google Eat Right Nutrition Podcast and we will come up and we're available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Yeah, man. I'll include all of your links down in the description of this episode too. So if you guys are listening and want to check out Jerome's content and his business, just go down to the description. All the links will be there. And guys, as always, if you've enjoyed this episode, all I ask of you is to take a second and rate the podcast and leave a review. It helps me tremendously. These episodes take a lot of time and effort. We do them completely for free because we enjoy it, but it would just be a nice way to show your appreciation. And if you're watching on YouTube, if you could take a second to give it a thumbs up, comment, subscribe, I would truly appreciate it. Thank you guys all for tuning in and I'll catch you in next week's episode.